three, two, one. <laughs> what? Reversal of fortune. That's why I tell my friends everything happens for Seriously, a reason. Seriously, you had one job. I, just, I, I can't with some of these people. I just, put down your goddamn cell phone. I don't think my dad even knows how to use a computer. Uh, uh, would you rather? Right, trust me, take no, my advice. No, but seriously, that legit happened. Hello, namaste, shalom, and welcome to Nervous Habits episode 14. I'm your host, Ricky Rosen, and essentially this is a podcast about, well, just about everything, ranging from biology and neuroscience to politics to fitness and back again. This week, we are going to be diving into three very fascinating topics, including pets, from dogs and cats to birds to fish. We'll be talking all about why any of us have pets in our households to begin with, and how owning a pet can enhance a person's life. Nutrition. What is the controversy surrounding eating genetically modified foods, and why you should be wary of so-called natural flavors in your processed foods, and politics. We'll be delving into PC culture, otherwise known as call-out culture and outrage culture, and how exactly they became so pervasive, and why, although the vast majority of people are against PC culture, it continues to plague American discourse. All that and so much more on this week's episode of Nervous Habits. Continue to send those emails, guys, to nervoushabitspodcast at gmail.com, nervoushabitspodcast at gmail.com. Also, follow us on Instagram at nervoushabitspodcast. If you like the show, if you listen to it, if you know makes you scratch your head and, and think about things in ways that you you know have not done so previously, feel free to recommend it to a friend um, and review it on iTunes um, or Apple Music if you would like. I would really appreciate that. Last week was a difficult episode to record, um, to say the least. But, excuse me, upon listening to it again, I do really like how it came out. I know the tone was a little bit more somber, more slow, more serious than you're used to. And, um, you know, that's not a style that is going to be uh, maintained through nervous habits. I think it was, you know, more of the exception to the rule, wanted to, to discuss that topic and, and had to do it justice and treat it seriously. Um, it, it was probably my favorite episode that I've done so far, that being said. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to episode 13, where I explore death and why we fear it so much and how it might benefit you to to think about your death and your mortality more seriously, feel free to give it a listen um, and let me know what you think. Did have some some emails come in this week uh, from folks who who listened to the episode and and had some thoughts about it. The first one is from uh, Stephanos A. This is actually a friend of mine that that wrote in for the first time here. Um, He mentioned, he said... uh, I listened to episode 13 on death while eating meatloaf. That's that's actually a reference to, to, to something I said in the episode. I thought it was your best one yet. I like the part about religion. Broken down, religion is representative of humanity's humility. I also thought prenatal non-existence and its juxtaposition to after-death non-existence was interesting. The part about Becker not staying in his lane was funny. I wonder what Becker would think of that. The episode made me reflect so much so that I even ordered the Becker book. And that's what, what Stephanos wrote. So uh, thanks thanks so much for that for that feedback. I'm glad you were able to get something out of it. Um, some, some solid takeaways there. Also have another 
Uh, email here from uh, Brian V. Brian Varnson's written in several times before. Uh, Brian wrote, I thought the episode on death was really high quality, very meta and thought-provoking overall. It put things in perspective when you're made to think about your imminent demise. Was a good fusion of perspectives from books and people on their deathbeds. Okay, yeah, I'm glad, Brian, that you uh, enjoyed that part. You know, it's... Tonally, it was, uh, you know, I wasn't sure whether to include the, the you know, uh, aspects on, on people in hospice care reflecting in their lives, but I think it was important to consider, you know, as we, as we think about our death and what we can draw from that, you know, from that method of considering our lives the lessons that we can learn in in how we're living today. So that's I think that's why I included that, and I'm glad Brian that you appreciated that aspect. And then we have uh, another note here from Hannah in Portland, uh, and Hannah wrote, "I never thought about the way we look forward. We look forward to things instead of wishing for the past. It was really cool and relatable, though I think tragedy is more subjective." Yes, the loss of potentiality is totally existent, but someone could be more upset about Betty White dying than maybe a younger and lesser-known actor. Perhaps popularity factors into how society handles death. Is it better as a society to honor humans' achievements rather than mourning their loss? So there I think Hannah's referencing, I mentioned um, in the episode that Oftentimes, we treat the death of a child or a young adult as tragic um, compared to someone in their 80s and 90s because of the loss of their potential, because of the fact that you know he or she could have been uh, a politician or an artist or you know an author and never quite had the opportunity to live up to that potential, and that's part of why it is a tragedy compared to someone who has lived a full life. Hannah, you know, has the the counter argument there. And then Hannah also says, the whole podcast was really thought-provoking and beautiful. Your lessons for life were illuminated by data and reason and, reason and emotion. It was great. So um, thank you so much, Hannah. And to uh, Stephanos and Brian as well for your feedback. You know, I, I might revisit the, the conversation about death Um in a later episode, I mentioned that I did want to do an episode on gratitude at some point on why we should live our lives, um, you know, reminding ourselves of what we're grateful for, the mindset of, you know, what we being, – being mindful of what we have and not what we crave or what we need or what we're missing. That might morph into a conversation about happiness and might, you know, peripherally revisit the, the notions of – of death and mortality. So to be continued on that front, but again, thanks for the, the feedback. Always appreciate it. And, um, keep those emails coming guys. So on a lighter note this week, uh, I, I, I do want to touch on a couple of topics. Um, the first being pets, uh, followed by, uh, nutrition and then, um, PC culture. And I know some of you guys may not listen to, to these episodes in their entirety. Maybe you'll jump around. Maybe the second, the first or second topic, you know, doesn't do it for you. But stick around if you're someone that jumps around. Stick around for my segment on uh, PC culture because it's. I, I I've thought a lot about this. I've I've done some preparation. I have a lot to say about that. So, um, you know, just just make sure <laughs> make sure you listen to that part um if nothing else uh that being said i want to open by exploring with 
the subject of pets. P-E-T-S, pets. And a pet is just a euphemism for enslaved animal, domesticated, captivated animal, um, which we call a pet. And if you really think about it, guys, it's so unusual that we own pets, that we have ownership over this living thing, you know, that's that's essentially forced to live with us against its will, although, you know, who knows if animals have will or consciousness, <clears throat> that's, that's semantics. But we keep dogs on leashes, we keep birds in cages, we keep fish in tanks, and from one perspective, it is rather cruel to own an animal and to keep him or her enslaved within your four walls. But this isn't a new phenomenon. This isn't something that Americans or you know Westerners have begun doing in the last you know, 100, 200 years. The truth is humans have been keeping pets for generations. And I'm sure you guys remember uh, from your studies of, of history um, that in ancient times, the Mesopotamians kept dogs as pets. It's well documented that documented that ancient Egyptians would domesticate cats. You know, in the images you've seen, the paintings, domesticated cats would sit under the chairs of the pharaoh. Egyptians also, you know, tamed lions and hyenas and monkeys and geese. But the purpose of, of a pet and the relationship a, a pet and its owner had has really evolved over the years to the point where today pets, you know, in modern times, the pet owner relationship is founded on companionship. But again, back in the day, a pet would serve a practical goal. You know, dogs, cats, and hyenas, they they were kept around to catch other animals to feed their human masters in ancient times. Pets guarded livestock or, or territory or the owners themselves. Um, specifically, dogs were, were useful for this. In, in some societies, pets were used as a source of food when other resources would become scarce. Um, a food source. So like guinea, guinea pigs, for example, um, were used in, in such a fashion. Uh, pets were used to eliminate pests. So keeping rats around to, to catch mice, or excuse, <laughs> excuse me, keeping cats around to catch mice. Not, not so much rats to catch mice. I don't know if, if it would work that way. Um, and that's obviously still being done today. I'm sure some of you guys have friends who have, you know, uh, cats in the household specifically, to, to, to keep mice away. Some pets uh, were bred for aesthetic purposes, like uh, having a career as a show dog or a show cat. That's that's also an older profession. It's not something that, that's pretty new. Um, so although today most people have pets in their homes for, you know, for uh, as a companion or maybe as like a conversation piece, like someone comes and says, oh, what a beautiful bird you have in your cage. Back in the day, they did have pragmatic purposes. Now today... I'm sure you know the majority of people, the majority of consumers of of, of you know of, of people that are are financially stable, making purchases um, in households own pets. Uh, according to uh, you know to a recent study um, that I'm, I'm going to link in the details section, globally about sixty percent of consumers own pets, um, and the most popular pet globally, I think you guys can can figure it out. Is dogs is is man's best friend uh, owned by thirty three percent of um, of respondents in this study? Cats were in second, uh, coming in twenty three percent of this uh, of this study, followed by fish and birds and other pets types. Now, the United States is is among the highest um, ranked countries in pet ownership, especially when it comes to owning uh, owning cats. But you know there are several countries that have 
higher rates of pet ownership than America. Argentina, Mexico, and Brazil have the highest rates of, of pet ownership worldwide, with dogs being the most popular pet in all three nations. And in America, I mentioned that America is considered fifth worldwide amongst countries for pet ownership. Um, 50% own dogs and 39% own cats. So you can see a trend here that there is not, when you consider, you know, the diversity of animals in, you know, in, in our ecosystem, there's, there's really not a lot of diversity reflected in pet ownership because there are actually laws that state what animals you can and cannot have in your household. I mean, this is common sense. If you walked into your backyard and you saw an alligator, you couldn't just bring that thing into your house and start calling it fluffy, right? I mean, states generally have their own policies on exotic pets, um, but you know, certain pets are illegal to have in most states in the U.S. For example, you know, bats, lions, flying squirrels, skunks, alligators, penguins, monkeys. These are pets that, if you you know were found um, in possession of, it would be. A misdemeanor and a felony in, in, in some states. You could go to jail for owning these pets. Ironically, I, I mentioned monkeys. Uh, my, my father had two pet chimpanzees when he was younger, Oscar and Rosie, um, and he has some some great stories. This was back in, I believe, the 80s before it was illegal to own chimpanzees. He had to give them away, and hopefully, hopefully I can get my dad on the podcast at some point because he, he, I think my dad would have some really um, intriguing perspectives on, on a lot of these conversations, um, specifically, you know, with regards to pets. And one of the reasons why you're not allowed to own exotic pets, uh, first of all, it's dangerous, you know, to, to take care of an alligator or a pet monkey or a lion. But beyond that, some species are endangered by the pet trade, by the hunting and capturing of exotic animals in the wilderness. Um, it's dangerous to the maintenance of some animal populations because, you know, there are, what, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of animal species that are no longer exist, no longer exist in the world because of, you know, natural processes, uh, evolution, survival of the fittest, they were discontinued, or because of human interference, deforestation, pollution, um, the exotic pet trade, we have decimated certain animal populations. And one of those populations um, is tropical birds, tropical parrots. And this is a wonderful segue for me to ramble about my pet birds for a few minutes. I may have mentioned already, maybe I haven't. Um, I think I did, uh, maybe when I talked about animal intelligence several episodes ago, but I have tropical parrots um, as pets at my parents' home. And I grew up with them. We purchased them from an exotic pet store when they were babies. And anyone who knows me um, knows that I'm obsessed with parrots. You know, b- back when I uh, worked at a law firm out of college, one of my friends called me the Birdman, um, just because I had this this fixation with um, with parrots and with my, with my birds specifically. I just think, obviously, I'm biased because I grew up with them, but I think they're such interesting creatures. I mean, parrots actually evolved from dinosaurs. They're part of the same animal family. Um, parrots will outlive their owners in good health and in captivity macaws like the ones that I have. We have a scarlet macaw and a blue and gold macaw. They can live well into their 70s. There are even reports of macaws living to be 100 years old in captivity. Captivity. Just like wrap your mind around that. 
Most people have a dog for 10, 15 years, 15 good years with a dog. You lived a good life. You know, these birds could live to be 100 years old. I mean, that's mind-blowing. Parrots are omnivores, so they'll eat pretty much anything. Although parrots in the wild, you know, they subsist on a diet of seeds, nuts, and fruits. Parrots will also eat meat. You know, we, we feed our parrots um, uh, lo mein, sweet potatoes, pound cake, meatloaf, hot dogs. We gave them matzah for Passover at our Seder. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, I may or may not have, have given my, my bird some Taco Bell when I was in high school. I would come back late at night, like sneak it in, give, give Doobie a bite. So they're really incredible animals. And obviously we all know that parrots are intelligent creatures given their capacity to learn languages, which I mentioned, uh, back when I talked about African greys. Um, but it's, it's really incredible if you look at the, the cognitive makeup of a parrot and scientists who study animal intelligence, they identify primates as the most intelligent given the proximity physiologically to humans in their brain composition. Elephants are, are also, um, you know, at, at, the, at the top of the list because of their self-awareness. Dolphins, you know, their social and emotional intelligence. But then usually in the scientific community, parrots are considered to be, you know, the next most intelligent animals, you know, after those guys. And what makes parrots so intelligent is that parrot brains are really similar to primate brains. It turns out parrots have a large region in their brain that acts kind of like an information superhighway between the two main areas of the brain. And there was a recent study done by a team of neuroscientists in Canada where they identified the brain region responsible for this remarkable intelligence in parrots called the pontine nuclei. And this uh, this pontine nuclei is similar to the neural circuit found in primates and humans. And in primates, what this area does is it transmits information between the cortex, which governs thinking, information processing, and higher cognitive functions, and the cerebellum, which regulates motor functions, coordination, and balance. So together, these brain structures are, are the source of complex functions in people and, and apes, right? It's this information superhighway that connects the, the, the cerebral cortex and the cerebellum. And what they, you know, what they looked at with, with birds, they were looking for whether or not the birds had an enlarged pontine nuclei, these neuroscientists. And what they found was the avian pontine nuclei was very small, but a different brain region, the medial spiriform nuclei was enlarged and was functionally similar to the primate's pontine nuclei, providing the enhanced connectivity between the, the cortex and cerebellum. Mammals, guys, mammals, dogs, and, and cats, they lack this neural circuit, but parrots have it, which you know allows them to, to have that higher level of cognitive processing. Um, so we know this is part of the reason why parrots, why macaws, why African greys are so intelligent. Um, you know, that, that's that's kind of my segue on why I love parrots so much. Uh, and there is scientific, there's a scientific basis to the fact that, you know, they, they are really gifted creatures. But getting back to the exotic animals, and I mentioned they are endangered by the pet trade. What really happens, you know, it, just to kind of take you through the process, 
A lot of animals are taken from the wild before they're sold as a pet. So if an animal's plucked from the wild, sometimes in violation of the law, it could be used in a breeding operation. It could be sold locally. It could be smuggled out of the country, um, exported illegally. And what's happening is this poaching that's done in these animal populations, guys, it's devastating species worldwide. It's decimated numbers of, of tortoises, um, you know, I mentioned parrots. The African gray parrot is now endangered. Hyacinth macaws, military macaws. This is a serious problem that's happening um, in certain parts of the world, specifically in South America. And what's even worse is that many animals will suffer during capture and transport. And even if they do end up at their final destination alive, some of them have psychological problems. You know, they're distressed. They can't eat or move or behave as they would in the wild. And it's sad. You know, it's really, really sad um, that, you know, the, the severity of this problem. There are efforts nationally and internationally um, to combat pet trade, to be vigilant about it. But one of the most important things you can do is ensure that you're not purchasing an animal that was poached illegally. Most parrots, for example, and you know that's that's my specialty. That's what I know the most about um, in terms of pets. They have leg leg bands, uh, bracelets on their feet to indicate their sex, their identification, and their status as a legally bred bird. My birds have them. They're always you know chewing, trying to get them off. And I think it's important that if you do get you know a parrot, for example, or I, I don't even know like a tortoise. Um, you make sure that that it was legally brought into the United States. Um, so getting back to the question that I posed at, at the open, I mentioned what are the pet, the benefits of owning pets? First of all, we're helping them maintain their populations. I mentioned that exotic pet trades do threaten populations, but on the whole, keeping an animal as a pet will help the subsistence of their population, helps us protect animals that are endangered if we keep them in our homes or in a zoo. And by and large, animals live longer in captivity than in the wild because they don't have to worry. You know, when they're when they're living in, in a home with five people, um, with three hots and a cot, as <laughs> as they say in prison, um, I don't know why I just said that, I, they, they don't have to worry about predators or lack of food supply or droughts or bad weather. We take care of them, you know, so, so they live a longer, more stable life. Obviously, the the major benefit of owning a pet is companionship. Uh, animals provide social support for people, and uh, this social support is correlated with several positive health outcomes. So they provide um, direct non judgmental support, having a friend who's always there for you and love you unconditionally. Obviously, that's going to do wonders for your mental and emotional well being. Um, animals also facilitate social interactions between people. Uh, creating social networks within communities. Like if you use your dog, you know, take your dog to the park and, you know, maybe the dog makes friends and you make friends. If you're new to town, new to a city and you want to meet people, <laughs> your dog might be a good matchmaker. Uh, maybe, you know, if you're looking, if you're a guy or girl looking to make a romantic connection, um, your animal could, could help you out there too. And the scientific research does support this um, on, you know, animals on having a pet being correlated with positive health outcomes. One study in particular showed that people who own pets may be more likely to survive a heart attack, believe it or not. Um, another study has showed that 
Pet owners are less likely to need to visit their physicians or require medication for sleep or heart problems. And I don't know about you guys, I, I buy that. I absolutely think that, you know, when you have that that stable force, it's almost akin to they say that people who have healthy marriages live longer lives than people who are single or, or separated or divorced. I think in many ways owning a pet is is analogous to having a spouse, just in terms of the, the consistency of the presence and the unconditional love and support. So there's certainly credence to that thought. And the other benefit or you know, more specific uh, group that benefits from pets, specifically dogs, is you know folks who have disabilities. Um, dogs, service dogs, and therapy dogs can actually be trained to provide affection and comfort to people in hospitals and retirement homes and nursing homes, um, and people with anxiety disorders and autism. Uh, I'm sure you've seen videos on Facebook of you know vets returning from war stricken with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, who are able to connect with with a golden lab and alleviate their anxieties, or children who have autism, who have trouble expressing their feelings, um, who you know have a special connection with um, with a dog. You know that's that's a pretty incredible service that a pet provides us. There's there was one study that I encountered on animal assisted intervention, um, which wanted to investigate the emotional and psychosocial benefits the service dogs provide for individuals with disabilities. And in terms of, you know, who was involved in the study, the study was between Purdue University, Alonco Animal Health, and the service dog organization Canine Assistance. And they compared service dog recipients and their family members um, with family members who are on a waiting list to receive service dogs. So that was the control group. And the participants completed an online survey that included questions about their health-related quality of life, as well as how they function emotionally and at work or school. And the results showed that those who already had a service dog in the home extreme significantly, excuse me, experienced significantly greater quality of life than folks on the wait list who did not have a service dog. They showed better functioning emotionally and socially and at school or work. Um, as a result of having the canine companion. What was also interesting about the study was that having the service dog didn't just provide benefits for the recipient, but also for their family members. So compared with family members in the control group, family members who had the service dog in their home showed better social and emotional functioning. So I think you know it's, it's pretty clear that pets, and in particular dogs, uh, the evidence is is overwhelming that there are greater social um, and emotional outcomes for folks who are in the in that care. And you know, another group that I want to mention that that really benefits from having pets, aside from folks with disabilities and vets, is elder people. Um, essentially, the research shows that when you give a senior citizen, a pet to take care of, it inspires them to, it, it, it provides them with motivation to um, to live a longer and healthier life. Um, and this this was actually an interesting study uh, on, on something called perceived control, where they wanted to see if you gave a senior citizen who, you know, didn't have a ton of hobbies, didn't have, a, you know, a life teeming with 
um, you know, social activities. If you gave them something to take care of, if you gave them a responsibility, could that increase their life expectancy? Could that improve their life? So in the study, they took um, residents in a nursing home and they put them in two groups. One group was told they could rearrange, they could arrange their furniture wherever they wanted, and they were given a plan to take care of. This was the perceived control group. The other group was told that the staff would take care of their furniture and it would water a plant that was given to them. So the first group had control over, you know, the design of their room and also control over this plant. The second group was, you know, didn't have that control. And that was the control group. They wanted us to uh, ascertain whether there was a difference in outcomes. And 18 months later, the residents who were given control, they were given that plant to take care of, that responsibility, those had improved health, you know, and longer life expectancies. And those in the control group, a greater proportion of them actually died. Um, So it shows that when you have perceived control, you know, even if it's giving someone a plant to take care of, or perhaps if we extrapolate that, give someone a fish to feed once a day, you know, they live longer and they have more motivation, more purposeful existences. So that certainly is a another benefit of having a pet. And, you know, just, just to cover uh, another kind of ancillary, uh, a few other ancillary benefits to having pets I want to mention, having a pet can increase your opportunities to exercise, get outside and socialize. That's an enormous health benefit, especially if you have a dog. Um, you know, playing with pets can decrease blood pressure, cholesterol levels, tri- triglyceride levels, According to the the uh, Center for Disease uh, Control, the CDC, um, and studies have shown that the bond between people and their pets can increase fitness, lower stress, uh, decrease blood pressure. Um, I mentioned um, as well as bring happiness to their owners. So the CDC has done a lot of research on the health benefits of, of having pets, um, and and they've you know concluded that there is a correlation between positive outcomes and you know and and you know and having a pet in your household. So. I guess all this is to say that if if you're thinking about making an investment and in purchasing a dog or a cat or health health purchasing adopting a dog or a cat because there's so many dogs in shelters and, and cats in shelters and other animals that need homes, um, you know definitely consider it uh, a positive investment to make. Yes, it's it's a commitment. It's not something to be ta- taken lightly. I don't advise buying a pet with your boyfriend or girlfriend after you've been dating for a month or two. I don't advise, advise giving someone a, a puppy for their, their birthday or for Christmas. Um, but if you if you think you're ready for it, uh, certainly there are um, tremendous uh, you know tremendous benefits that could be had uh, from that. So you know get yourself get yourself a tropical macaw <laughs> or or a rabbit. You know having given love love to bunnies or a ferret or a guinea pig. Or, I don't know, maybe get some fish, you know, fish, fish are nice to look at, low maintenance. So, um, definitely something to consider. I want to turn to nutrition. Uh, we haven't, we haven't talked about nutrition in, in, in quite a long time. Uh, I think the last time we delved into nutrition, we were talking about king corn and the the omnipotence of corn in our diets, and how you know everything we ate contained corn or corn syrup in in some you know in some measure, and I I do want to provide you with some information on 
genetically modified organisms, GMOs, uh, because I think that, you know, this is a term, GMOs is a term that is is really bounced around in, in you know, in literature uh, a lot. And most people have seen the acronym, but they have no idea what the heck G- GMOs are. Um, and before I, I spell that out for you, l- let me just ask you this. If you ever look on the packaging for your Breyers ice cream or your bottle of orange juice or your bo- your box of wheat thin crackers, you may have seen the phrase natural flavors at the bottom of the ingredient list. You know, it contains uh, cornstarch, which I've mentioned, maltodextrin, um, salt, uh, you know, sugar, maltose, dextrose, whatever. And then it says natural flavors. And you probably wondered, one, what the hell that means, and two, whether natural flavors are really natural to begin with. I mean, if you see natural flavors in wheat thins, you're thinking, you know, this is, this is a box of artificial crackers. What could be natural about it? So the FDA, our friends at the FDA, set regulations on just what natural flavors entails. And this language, it's, it's pulled directly from the Code of Federal Regulations, Title 21, from the FDA. If you see natural flavors listed on the back of your food, that literally means it is any product whose aroma or flavor chemicals comes from plant or animal sources, including fruit, meat, fish, spices, herbs, roots, leaves, buds, or bark that are distilled, fermented, or otherwise manipulated in a lab. This distinguishes them from artificial flavors, which use man-made chemicals to give a product its particular flavor or aroma. Pause, time out, freeze, stop the clock. Natural flavors are any product whose aroma or flavor chemicals come from plant or animal sources, yada, 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 that are otherwise, that are distilled, fermented, or otherwise manipulated in a lab. So you mean to tell me that the so-called natural flavors in the food we're eating can be manipulated in a, in a lab and still considered to be natural under the FDA regulations? Yes. And that's because much of what we eat is genetically modified. You've probably heard a lot about genetically modified foods. In the last year or two in particular, it's, it's become like like hot pop nutrition, pop science. You know, this food contains GMOs, so it must be bad. Or this product has zero GMOs in bold letters on the packaging. I guess the first thing to clarify is what the hell are GMOs? So GMOs are living organisms, plants or animals, whose genetic material has been artificially manipulated in a lab through genetic engineering. So the result of GMOs is some combination of plants or animals or bacteria, or virus genes that don't occur naturally, that don't occur in nature or through traditional crossbreeding. So are GMOs safe? I mean, I mean, the thing is we don't know conclusively. There's, there's been a lot of literature, a lot of studies done, done on the safety of GMOs. I'm, I'm going to get to get that in a minute. But, I mean, I think it's important to realize right off the bat that most packaged foods that we eat contain ingredients derived from corn. I, I, I mentioned that, you know, at nauseum a few episodes back, as well as soy. And the vast majority of, of these crops are actually genetically modified. Now, before, you know, you, you freak out and, and throw out everything in your cabinets, the reality is humans have been eating genetically modified plants and animals for thousands of years. We've been 
genetically modifying things for generations. I mean, let's say a thousand years ago, you are a farmer in India and one of your crops has a great yield or one of your wolves is an awesome hunter. And you're thinking, all right, this crop isn't going to be around forever. This wolf's not going to be around forever. But you want you want the, the, the plant or animal species to subsist for as long as possible. What you're going to do is you're going to breed the plants of the animals that have traits that are beneficial to you. Um, and so what you're doing, you're, you're deciding what plants and what animals and, and what genes and what traits to keep around for as long as possible. And in doing that, okay, in, in manipulating the, the genes, um, the expression of those genes, with every passing generation, these genes become more pronounced. So after thousands of years, almost every single plant or animal around us becomes vastly different from its pre-domesticated state. So if humans have been domesticating and genetically modifying plants and animals for millennia, what makes a GMO different? So selective breeding means that we can choose the, the traits that we want. We can choose to make a fruit grow bigger or to make a fruit or a vegetable immune to pests. This sounds great, right? Well, I mean, what, why would people be so concerned about that? That sounds like it would only be a, a net positive outcome. Well, the thing is about... Um, about GMOs is there have been cases of GMOs growing where they weren't planted or modified genes found in foreign crops. Because when you are engineering DNA, sometimes it's going to act, you know, it, it's not in your control. Sometimes it's going to unintentionally spread. Um, sometimes, you know, it, it's it's going to grow almost like um, a, a virus, uh, you, you know, an organism that that's spreading uh, out of your control. And though there are methods to control this, I think that's that's a central argument that people make against GMOs. Um, agriculturists do use buffer zones in order to keep genetically modified plants from interacting with surrounding plants. So like picture, picture like a, a square and everything on the outside of the perimeter is, uh, is you know, ordinary, non-genetically modified plants. And then inside the square in the area is the you know genetically modified plants and there's a buffer zone to separate them. It's not 100% effective. Um, and the other question that people are trying to grapple with is whether or not food that comes from genetically modified crops is any different than food that comes from non-genetically modified crops. And the truth is agencies like the FDA are scrutinizing for for years they're scrutinizing the the safety of you know of eating the corn or the soybeans checking it for defects checking it for health hazards and what they've essentially found based on you know the, the based on the experiment the empirical, the empirical evidence the observation the experimentation they found that eating genetically modified foods is no more risky than eating non-genetically modified plants or animals um, and I am going to include a link to uh, you know th that literature in particular, um, because again there is conflicting information out there, and the truth is you know this isn't something we know a ton about or, or something we can determine conclusively. But um, the agencies that have scrutinized this have found that eating genetically modified plants and animals is no more risky than eating non-genetically modified plants or animals. I want to revisit for a moment 
the natural flavors discussion I mentioned at the beginning of this segment, because that ties into our discussion of genetically modified organisms. Let's say that you're someone who is super vigilant about what you're putting into your body. And you want to know what the degree of certainty if a food that you're eating was manipulated in a lab at all. The truth is, guys, that you can never know with exactitude. And here's why. So food processors are required to list all the ingredients on that food label, you know, on on the back of your, your box of crackers or your can of soup. But they don't have to disclose the ingredients that go into a so-called natural flavor. They can add, they're allowed to add synthetic solvents, preservatives, emulsifiers, carriers, and other additives to a flavor, and it can still qualify as natural under current regulations. So if you see natural flavoring in your bottle of soda, you might be imagining them mixing in a small packet that says natural flavors on it, but really there could be 20, 30, 40, maybe 100 different artificial ingredients added in there, including GMOs. And now you're probably thinking, why the hell is this legal, right? Like, like, how, like how, how is this allowed to be a thing? How does this benefit consumers? I think part of it is has to do with um, protecting the trade secrets of certain companies, so if you look at like Coca-Cola, for example, their bread and butter, their golden goose is their Coke syrup, is their their secret formula for what goes into the syrup. If they put exactly to the to the milliliter what goes into the, the can of Coke, there would be a hundred thousand you know copycat um, products coming about making the Coke exactly as they would. And you know you might say, well, yeah, that's just uh, a byproduct of a free trade, a capitalist economy, that's fine. But in order to, um, you know, to protect the trade secrets uh, and give the the companies some leeway on what they can and can't disclose to the consumers, they allow them to include the label of natural flavors. So, you know, the person who's hurt by that, the people are the consumers because consumers don't know what goes into the natural flavors. And as I said, it could be a lot of different things, synthetic and artificial included. Now, for this reason, food safety advocates actually recommend that people with food allergies or dietary restrictions avoid food flavorings because the ingredients are not disclosed. But I mean, that's a difficult task because pretty much everything has natural flavors in it nowadays. Not just highly processed foods like candy and granola bars and frozen dinners, but also cereal and yogurt and you know, sauce. And, and I mean, I challenge you to go into your cabinet and find something that doesn't have natural flavors, that umbrella term that includes all this bullshit that nobody knows what's in there. I challenge you to find something that doesn't have natural flavors on it. And the thing is, you know, you really can't. And what's really, um, what's, what's dishonest and immoral about this practice is just how misleading the term natural is. And and I alluded to this, but just to reiterate, guys, research has shown that when people are presented with food packaging that says natural on it, you know, all natural products, natural ingredients, people tend to form positive opinions about the product, including how healthy it is. So in allowing the you know, food manufacturers to include natural products on the bottom of the label, they're giving them free license to, you know, to deceive consumers into thinking that, you know, something is 
different than than it actually is. And because the FDA hasn't officially defined this term, as I said, it can be used to describe pretty much everything. Okay, it, it, additives could be from natural sources or th- synthetic sources. As long as the original flavoring source comes from plant or animal material, it's classified as a natural flavor. Okay, and again, because the term natural has no official definition, even flavors sourced from genetically modified crops can be labeled as natural. So I feel like a lot of these conversations on nutrition, certainly the last one we had about government, uh, you know, agribusiness, um, government subsidizing, um, you know, agribusiness and, and how it affects the price of corn comes back to politics. This conversation does as well because the FDA is allowing food manufacturers to completely tyrannize what we're putting in our bodies. And I think that that's, that's a crime. Um, so, you know, definitely uh, takeaway here is is to understand that from what we know about eating genetically modified foods, they don't pose a danger relative to that of non-genetically modified foods. And it's something that humans have been doing for a very long time. But certainly be mindful, be vigilant about the natural flavor warning because it could include artificial synthetic sources as well as flavor source from genetically modified crops. I wanted to set aside a lot of time to talk about this this last segment on PC culture because I have an awful lot to say on this issue. This is uh, 14 episodes in the making. We've all heard it, guys. So-and-so isn't politically correct. You know, you can't say that. It's not PC. Uh, This person's a snowflake because he or she's offended by everything you say. What's ironic about PC culture is everyone hates it. Everyone's complaining about it all the time. There was a poll late last year in The Atlantic that asked Americans whether or not political correctness is a problem. So it didn't even define what, what political correctness was. It just said, is political correctness a problem? What it found is that an overwhelming majority of Americans, including young people, uh, minority people, think that this is a problem. You know, one person, an American Indian, a 40-year-old uh, in Oklahoma, said this in, in his focus group um, in this study. It seems like every day you wake up and something has changed. Do you say Jew or Jewish? Is it a black guy? Is it an African-American? You're on your toes because you never know what to say. So political correctness is in that sense scary. And this is an issue. This is a purely American issue. I mean, you don't, you know, if you talk to people from other countries, you know, they're not dealing with this in Australia or Europe. This is an American issue that's exploded over the last few years and Again, because it seems like everyone is is criticizing this this way, this lifestyle of being PC, it begs the question, who the hell supports this? I mean, how did this even come to be? So I'm going to get to the latter question um, in a few minutes in terms of how PC culture evolved. But in terms of who in the world supports PC culture, we know that young people detest it. According to this poll, three quarters of African Americans oppose it. So if age and race are not predictors of a support for political correctness, what is? This poll found that income and education were predictors of political correctness. So 83% of respondents who make less than $50,000 disliked political correctness in this poll. And 70% of people who make more than $100,000 are skeptical about it. So there's a little bit of a a gap here with, you know, people of higher socioeconomic status being more... um, more uh, receptive, I guess, or just less, uh, you know, less averse to PC culture. Um, 
And then in terms of education, 87% of people who never attended college think that PC uh, culture has become a problem. Well, only 66% of people with a degree share that sentiment. So, you know, maybe this poll suggests people that are very well educated are the ones that are, are um, you know, pushing and, and promulgating PC culture. I think that's a possibility as well. And, and we're going to get into, uh, you know, how this is a, a problem on college campuses. But the best predictor of views on political correctness is ideology. Among devoted conservatives, guys, 97% believe that political correctness is a problem, while only 61% of traditional liberals do. Among progressives, progressive activists, only 30% of people see political correctness as a problem. So visualize the spectrum, guys. All the way to the right, the Republicans, 97% of them think PC culture is a problem. A little bit to the left, left-leaning, 61% think it's a problem. And all the way to the left, the progressives, 30% think it's a problem. So essentially... Republicans and conservatives have the biggest bones to pick with PC culture. And many, though not most, or, you know, many, though not most Democrats, most progressives, are comfortable with it. There's, there's a, lot of, a lot of conclusions that you can draw from, from this, but I think that part of the reason for this is a lot of people who are uneducated, who don't follow politics with the rapt attention of someone who's you know, has a stable job or has, you know, six degrees. These people are not overly concerned with this call-out culture. You know, there was one woman in Mississippi, 57-year-old, who who said it this way. The problem with PC culture is the way that you have to term everything just right. And if you don't term it right, you discriminate them. It's like everybody is going to be in the know of what people call themselves now. And some of us just don't know. But if you don't know, then there's something seriously wrong with you. So what this woman's saying is, let's say you're uninformed on an issue like feminism or gender identity expression, and you ask a question about it. Or let's say you refer to someone by an incorrect pronoun or use an outdated expression. You don't have malicious intent, but you're merely ignorant and uninformed. In a lot of circles, you are reduced to a bigot or a sexist or a transphobe for simply being ignorant about a topic. This issue is pervasive on college campuses. Let me let me introduce that idea with an extreme example of PC culture on college campuses. A few years ago, the University of New Hampshire released a bias-free language guide with the goal of helping to foster healthy language to refer to all people. Some of the recommendations struck people as common sense. The guide recommends using black or African-American instead of Negro. But some of the suggestions, guys, were a little excessive. The bias-free language guide suggests using U.S. citizen or resident of the U.S. instead of American. Because North Americans often use American, which depending on the context, fails to recognize South America. The guide says you should not use the term Elder or senior citizen. I think I use both terms um, in, in my segment of pets. You should use people of advanced age. The justification is that old people, the is that old pe- the idea of, a, of, a, of the wording of an old person has a stigma. You know, and, and we have to euphemize age. You know, euphemize it. Uh, advanced age lacks the stigma of an old person, an elder, senior citizen. <sighs> 
The guide says you, you should use the term people of size instead of overweight or obese people. But this one is problematic because literally there's a scientific basis to this terminology. The body mass index chart, which doctors use you know, to characterize someone's weight, they it literally says overweight and obese measure the severity of their weight problems. I mean, I, sh- should we rewrite the science, UNH? I mean, we can't use illegal alien. That's improper. We need to use undocumented immigrant or person seeking refugee. We can't say guys when referring to people. I, I mean, you guys have, have heard. I, I, that's why I, that I'm like a man. I would be an offender. We can't say guys. We have to say folks or people or y'all because it's gendered. Okay, folks. Okay, people. Let me know if y'all think that's okay. We can't say handicapped or physically challenged. We must say wheelchair user or person who is wheelchair mobile, physically disabled, or quadriplegic. I tell you, some of these suggestions from the Bias-Free Language Guide, they would lead to a lot of verbose conversations. So the other day, I was with a person of advanced age who may have been a wheelchair user or physically disabled and a person of size. I mean, who who speaks like this? This is like Captain Holt from uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine or or, uh, that guy Sheldon from uh, Big Bang Theory. I think he talks like that. Um... You know, you can't say deaf person. You have to say person who's hard of hearing. I wish I was making this up. I'm, I'm actually going to post a link to the guide in the detail section so you can check it out yourself. But the University of New Hampshire actually published this bias-free language guide. They got a lot of pushback. They took it down. And, and I know this is like very extreme and most college campuses aren't like that. But it, in my opinion, this, um, this epitomizes the issue that college campuses are breeding grounds for this kind of coddling. So much so that President Obama, who is the definition of a liberal, spoke out against this attitude rather famously back in September of 2015 in front of college students. You may have seen this speech on YouTube. He said, sometimes there are folks on college campuses who are liberal and maybe even agree with me on a bunch of issues who sometimes aren't listening to the other side. And that's a problem too. I was just talking to a friend of mine about this. I've heard some college campuses where they don't want to have a guest speaker who is too conservative. Or they don't want to read a book if it has language that is offensive to African Americans or somehow sends a demeaning signal towards women. And I got to tell you, I don't agree with that either. I don't agree that you, when you become students at colleges, have to be coddled and protected from different points of view. I think you should be able to, any, anybody who comes to speak to you and you disagree with, you should have an argument with them. But you shouldn't silence them by saying, you can't come because I'm too sensitive to hear what you have to say. That's not the way we learn either. And I agree a thousand percent with President Obama. How are, how are we supposed to learn when we're sheltering students from information, protecting them from things that you know we or they deem to be offensive in these so-called safe spaces? Classrooms are, are, are now safe spaces. The world is what it is. And concealing children and young adults from it isn't going to prepare them you know, for what they have to face. These, these terms, microaggressions and trigger warnings and safe spaces, they're just window dressings that disguise the biggest issue facing teenagers and, and you know the youth in, in Generation Z. They're entitled, you guys. They're entitled. You people, you people, going to start saying that. They're entitled to see the world as they want it, to dictate other people's actions and, and communications. But you know what? It isn't that way. And not everyone's going to conform to these standards of being politically correct, perfectly politically correct. And they have to accept that. 
And it's just, to me, there's such a, an inherent contradiction because these, cla- these colleges are so focused on diversity, having people of different races and ethnicities and backgrounds and socioeconomic classes on their campus. But intellectually, it's almost like they want to create a hive mind for all people who think exactly the same way. Colleges, including my own, by the way, disinvite speakers because of backlash every year. Um, professors at Rutgers joined together recently to demand that uh, former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice be disinvited as their commencement speaker. At my alma mater, Brandeis, uh, Ayan Hirsi Ali was disinvited from uh, the commencement address. Um, the International Monetary Fund, uh, the managing director, Christine Lagarde, was pressured to back out of her planned address. I mean, and, and this is just the start of it. You see all the time uh, the the TV host and transgender right activist, Janik Mock, had to withdraw from speaking events after uh, students protested. Um, ben Shapiro, you know, he's in the news for this all the time, was slated to speak at Cal State University in LA and uh, critics slammed his proposed lecture, which ironically was about microaggressions and safe spaces, and the university revoked their invitation. At the University of Chicago, Anita Alvarez, the uh, sta- Illinois state attorney, her speech was interrupted and didn't continue because of student protesters, students and non-students. At GW, at George Washington University, the rapper Action Bronson's invitation to perform was revoked because there were claims that his lyrics were misogynistic and he, he you know, had a history of transphobia. At UPenn, John Brennan, the director of the CIA, had an event disrupted by protesters for his involvement in drone strikes in the Middle East, and the event had to end early. Early, literally, there's hundreds of these every year. I, I can, um, you know, link an article by Business Insider where they have a, a like a database of all the disinvited speakers, and it's so confusing because college is supposed to be havens for education and intellectual diversity and freedom of thought, and they've become institutions where only one method of thinking is tolerated. And I don't want you to think that I'm slamming the liberal mode of thought because I'm not. You know, this is really a nonpartisan discussion, but most of the people who are disinvited or removed from these campuses are folks who identify as having conservative beliefs that the largely liberal college, you know, populace, the students, the faculty disagree with. But as President Obama said, rather than engage with the speaker or make them question their beliefs, or even try to better one's own understanding, the administration and the students feel that by silencing them in the name of PC culture and microaggressions and being offended is the best way to go. To me, that's not free speech, and that's certainly not democracy. You know, there's a book by uh, Jonathan Haidt that I wanted to mention. It's called The Coddling of the American Mind, and it deals with this issue. Um, It's a a fantastic read. I definitely recommend it. going to include in the detail section. And it deals with how this issue started. And, and this is something I'm really interested in, is, is why why 2019? Why are we dealing with you know PC culture now as opposed to 20 years ago? He alleges that the issue emerged in 2014 and really blew up in 2015. And he argues that there are six different causal threads that came together in 2014 that led to the emergence of uh, call-out culture. That's what he calls it, call-out culture. The two most important factors, according to Haight, are the rising political polarization of the left and right. So Democrats and Republicans, liberals and conservatives are becoming more and more divided uh, to the point where it's become like an us versus them mentality of, of their supporters. And an enormous shift to the left among college faculty. So what you have 
you know, in, in this this cauldron that we're, that we're cooking, you have a, a more left-leaning faculty at a time where divisions between left and right are as big as they've ever been. And the byproduct of that is campuses as, as a battleground for speech and for thought. And this is also coupled with, as Haight says, the fragility of children growing up in Generation Z after 1995 who are raised on social media and cell phones and are just not equipped to dealing with conflict. They don't know how to engage in respectful discourse or healthy disagreement or argument. You know, they, they simply cry um, trigger warning or seek safe spaces or, you know, look for reasons to get offended because this is how they cope. And Haidt also argues that the problem is localized. So it's not something that we see in the South or the Midwest, but rather at the elite colleges in the Northeast and the West Coast, since that's where the culture has, has changed so considerably. And that's where, you know, most of these upper echelon educational institutions are located. And the difficulty for faculty and for really all teachers, you know, even, even in middle school and high school, is they end up having to teach, their standards for teaching are dramatically altered. They have to teach to the most sensitive person in the class. If you have a class of 100 students and 99 of them won't be offended by a metaphor or, or analogy or a pop culture reference, but one of them might be, you need to teach to their standards. You have to play it safe. You can't risk mentioning anything provocative or scary or risky. And the result is everyone's education suffers. Let's say there's a book. President Obama m mentioned a book. A book that, you know, uh, that some folks might not be... Look at To Kill a Mockingbird. A book that deals with race relations and, and um, you know, racism and rape and, and, and all these, these issues that are hugely important for young people to be aware of, that's banned in certain schools, on certain colleges, high schools, because it's offensive to people. And students are being deprived of this incredible literature and all these amazing ideas because it's not politically correct. And the problem is that when these kids are in insulated environments right now in schools, and they're going to leave there and go out into the workplace and struggle to acclimate in the real world. And this isn't something that's going to be, you know, correct itself. It's, it's, it's a mentality that's ingrained in these young people and will subsist. And this, this notion of call-out culture that I mentioned, this is the idea that if someone offends you, rather than private, privately bring up the transgression with them to better it, you need to publicly shame them. He mentions that he spoke with a professor who was in class and he couldn't think of a term. And he was, oh, come on, come on, shoot me now. And a student rose her hand and told the professor in front of the entire lecture hall that having, you know, knowing someone that committed suicide or, or had, you know, history of mental illness, she was deeply hurt by the professor saying, shoot me now. And look, I understand if, if the student was hurt by that. I really do, and I think that the student could have come to the professor to relay that in a respectful manner. But that's not what call-out culture is. Call-out culture isn't about 
bettering the environment for everyone. It's not about communicating your concerns. Call-out culture is about getting credit for bringing someone down. You throw up that virtue flag like, I got one on the board, guys. I nailed the professor. I made this a safer place for everybody. This is the environment that the coddling of the American mind amongst young people has created. And you see it, you know, not just in education, you see it in entertainment too. And let me give you a, 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 you know, a great example of this, um, about how severe of a problem this is becoming among young people. At Columbia University last year, a comedian by the name of Nimesh Patel attended um, an event in the fall. He, he was uh, going to do a, a stand-up routine. And he told a joke at Columbia about when he realized that being gay can't possibly be a choice. And he says, he tells an anecdote about meeting a black man who's gay. And he says, no one would choose to be gay if they're already blacked. If they're already black, no one is doubling down on hardship. He told a joke and then he goes on to say something else. You know, a smattering of laughs didn't really resonate with the crowd. A few minutes into the routine, the event organizers actually ushered him off the stage. And they told him in front of the entire crowd of a couple hundred kids that his jokes were disrespectful and his set would have to end early. Patel left peacefully. He didn't put up a fight. And he ended up penning an op-ed in the New York Times that wrote last, uh, ran last December, and I'll include it in the detail section, about his experience and what he learned about you know the culture of on college campuses. Granted, there was pushback. There were Columbia students who reached out to apologize, who said they didn't agree with him, you know, being kicked out. And um, but certainly, this is not new in the comic industry in 2019. Uh, the comedian Bill Burr um, was one of my, I think he's laugh out loud funny. He's he's uh, he played uh, what's his face on Breaking Bad, not Huel, the the other guy Kubi, I think. Um, but he's he's, a, he's an amazing comedian from Boston, and he refers to this phenomenon as outrage culture. And he did a he did an appearance on the Joe Rogan Experience, really great, probably my favorite podcast, back in December twentieth of twenty eighteen. You can watch it on YouTube. And he make you know he went into detail on outrage culture and and how he sees outrage culture manifesting itself in comedy. And he mentioned that a lot of his fellow comics will go on Twitter now. And they'll post what jokes you can and cannot make on certain topics. Which is, I mean, it's beyond ludicrous that these 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 guys are on their white, uh, their high horse, these 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 comics dictating what is and is not appropriate to include in in a comedy set. And in true Bill Burr fashion, he he says, Bill Burr said on the Joe Rogan podcast that progressives today have this mindset of think the way we think. Say what we want you to say or we will fucking destroy you. Case in point, this is an example that Bill Barr gives. A woman on Twitter pointed out um, uh, a couple months ago that she would never vote for a candidate who was either a white person or a male. A man who was an adjunct uh, professor at Boston College responded to her viewpoint and he said, hey, you know what? I think that might be a little bit sexist and racist, which it is, right? So the woman blocks him on Twitter and then calls Boston College and demands that they not have him back as adjunct faculty. Can you believe that? He points out, I mean, Twitter, it's, it's you know, uh, an open forum. Anyone can respond to anyone. He points out that our viewpoint was sexist and racist, which if the shoe was on the other foot, I mean, people, you know, point these things out all the time if, if we were talking about a different demographic. And the woman 
says to herself that because the man had the audacity to have a different opinion, he should lose his job. This is not an isolated incident. It happens all the time. And this is not just PC culture. It is outrage culture. I am outraged. I have all this anger and outrage and I have nowhere to funnel it. And I am going to funnel it at you because you committed a moral transgression. It is the fight for the moral high ground. When someone says that they're offended by something you say, suddenly they ascend onto this pedestal of morality. You know, you begin looking up, you're craning your neck, oh, it hurts, you're leaning back. They ascend to this pedestal of morality that they are the only one who possesses the standards for what's right and what's wrong, and you've violated their code somehow. And they're outraged, and any action that they take as a result, in this case, the woman trying to get the man fired, is, is justified. And, you, you know, you might be wondering, how do these people have power? You know, why... why why give them a pulpit? Why give them a forum? Why not just ignore these people? And the reason why this is so effective, this is something Bill Burr also says on the podcast, is that corporations and universities and educational institutions, they're terrified of outrage culture. Uh, Burr says, the corporate entities are so afraid that one fucking nickel is going to roll out the door because, because all this shit is that you're a paper tiger. You're just a paper tiger until you get the big behemoth to listen to you. Until you get the attention of, of a school or a company or a corporation. Hey, hey, pointing your finger. This guy over here, he, he did something bad. And just so we're clear, I'm not saying that when a school or a company dissolves their partnership with someone, it's not justified. It's never justified. Obviously, if a baseball player commits sexual assault or is convicted of a crime or something concerning from their past resurfaces and they lose their endorsement, that's a million percent justified. That happens all the time. You know, look at you know, look at what, what happened in Hollywood last year, excuse me, with the Me Too movement. Um, certainly a lot of those men, uh, you know, their their careers were effectively ended as a result of the transgressions they committed. That's that's warranted. I mean, these people, um, you know, they they committed egregious, egregious acts. And that is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when someone says something that may not adhere 100% to the always evolving, impossible to reach standard of what is politically correct, they shouldn't have their job security questioned as a result of that. And I mentioned with the Me Too movement, you know, celebrities are getting taken down as a result of allegations of sexual misconduct. That That's all, you know, that's all justified. It's, it's great that that's happening. It's great that these women are empowered to, to, to speak out and have the courage to, to, you know, share their experiences with the world. But then you have some people that come out of the woodwork and they ask, what's the evidence here? Just to try to better understand the issue, just like I mentioned when, you know, less educated folks are ignorant about things like gender and sexuality and they ask a question. And these people would be completely annihilated. You know, someone would say, you're part of the problem. And... <laughs> I mean, let me give you a great example of this. Matt Damon said last year, um, I, either earlier this year or late last year, he said there's a difference between the Harvey Weinsteins in the world and the Aziz and Saris. Harvey Weinstein, of course, is a sexual predator who has been criminally, criminally indicted, maybe convicted, for committing dozens of sex crimes in the film industry for decades. Aziz and Sari is a comic who went on an awkward date with a girl. She went on Babe.net and wrote an article where she essentially accused him of attempted rape. And Matt Damon tried to distinguish between these two guys. He got obliterated online, guys. People tried to get him pulled off his movie, Ocean's 8, just for expressing an opinion. 
I mean, it's, it's no worry. People, no wonder people are afraid to speak up about this. If, if you react to an event and you don't react in a way that's perfectly in line with the, the outrage culture, the call-out culture, you yourself become villainized as a typical insert race, gender, socioeconomic class member here. So as a result, people are not reacting as much. People are not speaking up. And the marketplace of ideas, I mentioned back in episode 10, we talked about politics, the freedom of thought, that's stifled. You know, the bottom line is people today are allergic to opinions that they don't agree with. And it's this us versus them mentality that Jonathan Haidt spoke about in his book where there's such polarization in the left and the right that it's all about winning over the other side. That's winning at all costs, proving the other person right, uh, excuse me, wrong, calling them out. And I want to reiterate, there are people who are actually part of the problem. And if someone is clearly being a sexist or racist or bigot, bigot call them out on it. Educate them. You know, Try to get that, that shit, that nonsense to stop. But I think you need to question the intention of someone with regards to PC culture. You know, I had a friend who was visibly shaken after I laughed at a meme on Halloween. It was a, a pilot that was dressing up as a blind man. It was a meme of a pilot that was about to walk onto the cockpit and he was pretending to be blind. He had his, his walking stick. And my friend was visibly shaken because she felt that it was offensive, deeply offensive to blind people. Now, my friend was not blind. Um... But on behalf of blind people, she, she, she you know, was the representative, the class representative of the group and felt it was offensive. But my intention was not to you know, poke fun at the state of being blind, nor was that the intention of, of the meme creator, I would imagine. And I think it's important to consider atten- intention because when you look at the world that you're a hammer and everyone's a nail, you're just looking for stuff to be offended. That's gendered. That's bigoted. That's uninformed. That's ignorant. You lose the ability to smile, to laugh, to find things funny. I mean, and it harms your relationships too, because as you know, someone in one of the focus groups I mentioned earlier said, other people end up walking on eggshells around you, or just plain not wanting to hang out with you anymore. I, I mean, I'm sure you guys have people like this, friends, or you know colleagues, coworkers, that you really have to be careful what you say because just the smallest thing would... What's that supposed to mean? What do you mean by that? What mean you... And I want to reiterate, most people are not like this. As I said, you know, in a class of 100 people, it's really just one person that, you know, brings about that most sensitive standard. It really is just a vocal minority that's out here dictating what is or isn't PC, what is or isn't offensive... But nobody is courageous enough to stand up to these people because God forbid you do, you get completely steamrolled again for being part of the problem. I mean, if any of you guys read 1984, uh, (laughs) can't say you guys, if any of you folks, if any of you people, if any of y'all have read 1984, it's almost like we have a modern day thought police in America. Um, So, I mean, is there a silver lining? Is there a light at the end of the tunnel? I don't know. For this, I, I know I always like to, to wrap up a segment and be positive. I don't know, guys, because it's kind of a self-perpetuating cycle that people are too afraid to speak out against this, um, to call out the caller-outer. <laughs> 
But who knows? I mean, culture is ever evolving. Politics is evolving. Uh, maybe, you know, at some point, everyone's just going to look at each other and say, you know what, this has gone a little too far. And that'll be that. Um, some takeaways from the episode, we've covered a, a ton of ground here. Uh, yet again, um, we talked about how, you know, having a pet has evolved in human history, the pragmatic purposes of ancient times compared to now having a, a pet as companion um, or, you know, as a service dog, therapy dog, and having those those positive health outcomes. Uh, don't forget about the intelligence of, of, of parrots, um, that special information superhighway in that brain. Um being uh, you know a virtue for them, uh, we talked about GMOs, genetically modified uh, foods, being informed on you know whether or not you're eating something that is truly natural or if it includes synthetic, artificial, or genetically modified ingredients, and of course with regards to uh, outrage culture and call out culture, um, the the crazy asinine lengths that it's gone. Uh, we, you know we talked about the contradiction between the diverse goals of institutions and the silencing that's happening on college campuses um, and, you know, how it's it's really become um, an insurmountable force, uh, folks calling each other out, virtue signaling for morality points. Um, so hopefully that remedies itself in the future. Next week, I'm going to be having another guest on uh, to embark on a uh, really great discussion on language, why in the world you should take the, the time to learn another language, and how knowing multiple languages can shape your worldview. Uh, we'll be looking at dating. This will be the third part of uh, the evolving dating discussion. We'll be diving into relationships and answering questions like, why is the average age of marriage getting later and later in the U.S.? Uh, what are the most significant factors for determining if a relationship will last? And what are the love languages? And finally, movies. What are the movies that everyone needs to see before they die? This has been a much lighter, <laughs> um, you know, more fun episode than, than last week on, uh, on the morbidity of death and mortality. Uh, definitely keep keep sending me the, those emails or those Instagram DMs um, at Nervous Habits Podcast or Nervous Habits Podcast at gmail.com. Um, and really hope you enjoyed this segment. Looking forward to, to being on next week. And stay nervous, guys. Take care.